Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Bodek, and I'm here with Paulina Portskova. Paulina, how are you? I'm very well, Josh. <laughs> the way you said it, I, now I have to explain why I just laughed, because <laughs> you, you got my name a little bit off before, and then you paused and gave that pregnant pause, Josh, and said it how I like it. Yeah. And I didn't, I called you Paulina. Uh, yes, yes, yes. You got my name right and I got yours wrong. So um, I, I wanted to, I wanted to uh, correct that. For those who don't know, you're a Czechoslovak born writer, former model, the first Central European woman to appear on the cover of Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue in 1984, which I remember. In 1988, she became one of the highest paid models in the world as the face of Estee Lauder. 16 movies, slew of TV shows, and you're still crazily active. And actually, when I saw you first in person, it was at the Barnes & Noble. Oh. And I think it was pre-release for your book. Anyway, that's when I had your book in, in my hand. And, and just before this, I went on to look at the reviews. And I didn't realize tons of reviews have come out since then. When I got it, you had like two reviews on online. And now, let me see. It's Time, Good Morning America, Harper's... Uh, one of 10 books you should read. Uh, so it was like, it's it's gotten much bigger than I knew. <laughs> well, ditto. <laughs> and I know why, because it's very easy to think, okay, model, whatever, it's going to be, but it's like touching. And um, I mean, the word vulnerable must be something that people come up, say a lot. Is Was it your intent to lay yourself bare like that? Um, you know what, it, it's not that it was done with a, an intent of any sort, really. It's just the person that I am. And when I write, um, that's my voice and that's how I speak. And that is how bare I will be if I'm speaking to you. And I've always been like this. So it's not like, oh, I want to let you into you know, my secrets and my vulnerabilities with this book. It's I've always been that open. It's just people never really cared to listen before. I Because I thought, I mean, there are a few really big things. I thought perhaps that the will, how that how things work out, worked out with your husband, Rick, that maybe something really difficult to handle got plastered up in the worst time, in the most difficult time. And maybe you felt like, now I must put this stuff out. But if you're like that all the time, I mean... Sorry if I'm dig dredging something up that... Uh, Don't worry. You, you can't dredge up anything that I haven't. <laughs> and if you do, then I'll be pleasantly surprised and I'll give you a round of applause. <laughs> so I thought it was something where you were like, okay, I must explain what's going on here. But um, And also, I think in the acknowledgments at the end, you, you acknowledge Maria Shriver and it was her imprint. Mm -hmm. And you talk about how you didn't have a lot of time to write this. What happened that you had to write something very quickly? What was, I mean, why did someone, why did she come to you and say, write this quickly? Well, that you would have to ask Maria. But the way, the, the way that um, it came about with me was that she called me uh, in the fall of uh, 2021. And she said, um, I follow you on Instagram and I really love what you're doing. I'm starting my own imprint and I want to publish like three or four books a year that will be meaningful to people that will somehow help to make the world a better place. And I love what you're doing. And would you write a book for me? And would you write a book for me sort of in the style that you write for Instagram? So she didn't ask me to write a tell all. She didn't ask me to write a memoir. She just wanted me to do what I do on Instagram, but in a longer form. And until then, I hadn't been inspired to write anything. I, I, I never, uh, actually, I always said that there's no way that I would write a memoir because I felt like that was really intrusive and that I would be forced to give away more than I wanted to. But the way she had it structured and the way she suggested it um, kind of left me free to do as I wanted. And then I went to the jungle uh, to do a reality show, which nearly killed me physically. Uh, I came back and Maria said, right, so the publisher wants your book and can you finish it by March 1st so you can be my third book this year? So 
and th- and that's how it came about. And I went, oh, so that gives me three months to write a book from start to finish. And she, yeah, that's yep. And I went, holy cow, that's a challenge. And anybody that knows me knows I cannot refuse a challenge. Uh, I will kill myself to to rise up to one. And so that's kind of what I did. I just I kind of wanted to see if if I could do it. Um, because my previous book, my novel took me five years. Uh, so I thought, let me try it. I mean, I don't know that I can do it, but I'll, I'll, I'll try. Um, and so I did, I woke up every morning and I wrote until my brain melted, you know, sometimes in the late afternoon and rinse and repeat every single day, including Christmas, including every weekend. I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And the thing is all of the things that I wrote about were at my fingertips. It's what I had been, I had been thinking of nothing but that, you know, cause I write about beauty and about aging and about grief and about betrayal and, and about, you know, sort of trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which I don't think is actually possible, but yet the expectations of people are that you, that you should be able to, that you should inspire others by doing that. And um, so it literally was like I just opened the vein at the typewriter and I bled all over it and you have the finished result. I think that's referring to Hemingway quote. I'm not sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Writing is easy. All you have to do is uh, open a vein at the typewriter. Yeah. And you, I mean, you had a, um, I also met at your release, um, oh, now her name escapes me, but your writing partner that you credit that did she, because the book like jumps forward and backward in time and here and there in space. And one could have easily gotten lost, but that wasn't the case. It was, um, well, that's probably in great part. Thanks to my editor at the book company who put them together like this. I wrote them in no specific order. I just wrote them in the way that it felt right. Like today, I feel like talking about this today. I feel like talking about this. And the woman that helped me with this, um, I wouldn't say writing partner because it kind of makes it sound like somebody else was writing for me. And I'm very, I'm kind of a stickler about that because people would love to give me no credit for writing things myself. Uh, Mm -hmm. She was my reader. She would, I would send her all my work at night and she would um, zoom with me in the morning and tell me what sucked and what was good. And then, and now I would go by that. That honesty and openness is a long time ago, I was an artist and I had gallery pieces and museum pieces and things like that. And I once worked with a, she was not a supermodel, but on the cusp. And before working with her, I didn't think much of modeling. Mm. And I thought, okay, acting, there's an art and um, writing, there's an art. Mm -hmm. And when she entered, actually, when she entered the room, no big deal. And there's a photographer and videographer. And as soon as they said go, like the whole room just centered on her. Mm-hmm. And I was young and I, I don't really know what was going on, but I was like, something just happened. Like there's something going on here that's a skill that's, I don't know if it's something that one learns or is born with or both. And then when I saw you entering at the at the bookstore, I thought, wow, she <laughs> like, I've seen... I've seen many people enter rooms and go up on stage. And I thought, are you behaving? Like, did you learn that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Is it, like, I, I sort of do. I mean, I guess you're, you're trying to figure out, is there like, is there like a switch that you flick on that you practiced? Is it something, or is it something that, you know, you're just born with? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Maybe the, maybe a certain number of people are born with something and agents discover them and, and bring them out. Look, or maybe it's maybe they're coaches and they teach how to express yourself. So let me clue you in to the world of modeling. You know how there's supposed to be, I, I don't know where I read this, but there's, um, they've, they, they, they call it like three separate kinds of intelligence. There's emotional intelligence, intellectual intelligence, and physical intelligence. And so this is why I often liken models to athletes because like an athlete, what you require to be a good model is the physical intelligence. And so this is an awareness of your body in space. 
This is, it's, it's, it's almost like a mathematical process that you go through in order to accomplish the task at hand. So athlete will, you know, the best of the athletes, uh, even without really realizing it, they stay, they sort of know how hard to, you know, grab for something, how high to jump, which way to move. There's, there's a sort of an instinct about it. And then you hone it by doing a lot of it so that it becomes sort of second nature. Now, modeling is not actually unlike that because what you're doing is that you're using your body and your face to, uh, to do your job and your job is not looking pretty. Your job is selling product. And most of the time, this product is not that attractive. So your job is to figure out how to make a not attractive product look good. And, and while using your body and your face. And so it's all a matter of like, you become very aware of light and how you look in certain lights, how your face which which way to turn, how to turn, how to, you know, how to get that smile that looks like you just burst into laughter, even though you're bored to tears or, you know, hurting and want to go home and how to angle your body in the tiniest of ways in order to showcase a garment that maybe would look like a garbage bag if you didn't, you know, if you didn't know what you were doing. So there is this sort of physical intelligence that models possess, the good models possess. I have to say, I think Linda Evangelista is probably one of the best one at the physical part of modeling um, because how she used her body and her face was really uh, kind of like watching a dance. You know, it's, you're just like, whoa, that's, that's how it works. That's how it should work. That, that's what the job is. And it's not effortless. It's not like you're, you know, just polished up as an apple and stuck into the bowl. You feel like it. But then you have to, you know, you have to position yourself so that you will shine in that bowl. Now, and you have to, and again, there's two ways of accomplishing learning this. One of them is uh, living with yourself in a mirror a lot, which of course seems like a ter- terribly narcissistic pursuit. Um, but it is in order to understand how your body looks and works. And then of course it's, you know, it's a 10,000 hours of doing it where it just becomes second nature. So does that, does it make modeling sound a lot smarter? Well, first it answers exactly my question. So I'm glad that you understood what I was trying to get at and uh, and address that. And also, yeah, there were some questions that came up along the way that you answered, but I'm going to, when you talked about comparing it with an athlete, athletes, I think of as training and training and training and training. And so when you mentioned the 10,000 hours, it's not just training, but training with getting feedback from others. So uh, deliberate practice, I guess, is like the, the term of art, I think. And which leads me to wonder, I, I presume, am I right that at 19, say by 20, 25, 30, your skills are improving, improving, improving all the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know it, right? It's Yeah, you get better and better at it. But as you're getting better and better at it, because of course, yes, you are practicing too every single day. Uh, as you get better and better at it, your face stops reflecting light to this to that extent that is now preferable. Um, you age, and then you have to you have to change your game a little bit. You have to start allowing for the fact that oh, now my face does not look good from every angle. Now it only looks good from these angles. So I have to keep this in mind. That I have to smile more. Because, you know, the, the jowls are setting in. So, and you have to kind of keep relearning the game because the rules change as you get older in modeling. But then, I guess, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, by the time you're in your 40s, nobody really gives a shit about you and you are no longer, you know, pertinent or current. It makes me think, as you were saying that, it suddenly it made me think of Billie Holiday. As she got older, her voice didn't have the dynamic, it wasn't as dynamic as it was when she was younger. 
But that's also in part because she was not exactly treating herself right. Yes. Still, she was able to, with the tools that she had, she was more evocative, I felt. And because the skill kept increasing. Mm -hmm. In your case, I guess an athlete, if they, if they want to be a great athlete, they're going to start losing game. They're, they're going to lose a game every now and then. Mm -hmm. I don't know how personally they take it. I guess if it's, a, if it's like tennis where it's just one-on-one. -on -one. But if you don't nail it, it's, you got to take it personally or I don't know. Or Well, actually, unfortunately in modeling, this is where it separates us a little bit from athletes or unless, like you're saying, tennis when it's one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, you take it personally, of course, because it is your failure. If the pictures don't come out well, if the pictures can't be used, um, you're the one who gets blamed. You are no longer attractive. And see, and this is where it suddenly becomes an entirely different issue. It's not that you failed at your job or only failed at your job. You are now also no longer attractive. That's the part that must be grueling. Or maybe, or maybe you become a professional and you say, well, you win some, you lose some. No, there is no woman that is in the business of beauty that likes to be told she's no longer attractive. That must be brutal at times. It's uncomfortable. Well, let's go, the, yeah. let's go the other direction. Every now and then LeBron just goes through the defense like it was like a hot knife through warm butter and dunks the ball and the, everyone's on their feet cheering. Do you ever get, do you ever just nail it and the whole place just is like, what did she do? How did she do that? Something like that? Uh, again, this is where we separate a little bit because, yes, it may feel so while you're on the set. I just did a job two days ago where, you know, I danced in on the set and brought a great kind of energy and everybody was just kind of cheering and going, oh, my God, this is why they pay you the big bucks. This is what. This is what separates a supermodel from a model. This is why you are who you are. And of course, it's very flattering while you're in the moment. But ultimately, the pictures that will come out are not my pick. I don't get to choose. It will be, you know, the company that hired me, the photographer, and they could be dreadful. And I'll, there's nothing I can do about it. And that's just the way it is. And then I'm, you know, sort of um, completely dependent on on the others to pick the results of my game. Now, I want to take a step back and explain to the listeners a bit of context here, because uh, this podcast is about sustainability leadership, not just sustainability. And leadership, to me, is an active, experiential, uh, performance-based, expressive art. And before I started teaching leadership and before I started writing books on leadership, I, I took acting classes, partly because I'd learned how... Uh, okay. Do you ever watch Inside the Actor Studio? Yeah, of course, of course. So you, the look on your face—you love it too. Oh my god! Yeah. it's like yeah. Are you kidding? It's like one of the that's like one of the best things on TV for for those who are interested in this. Yeah, or even if they're not, I mean, it's I just find it. I've seen it twice in person, and it's really amazing. It's like a five-hour experience, really, just something. And so this is, I started watching it around when I was, I'd finished business school and had not yet started teaching leadership. And here's what got me was that the actors kept saying that they dropped out of school or got kicked out of school or never went to school. And yet their skills that were relevant to leadership of reading a room, of conveying emotion, of, um, of controlling their emotion. I don't mean controlling it in, in, in a bad way. Sure. No, no. It was off the charts. And my professors in Ivy League Business School were not even close. And so how could I write, how did I reconcile Ivy League not as skilled as dropouts? So this was around the, the 08 recession and, and a friend of mine sold his business and became an actor and took classes. And I kept asking him, well, how do you teach this stuff? How, what's going on? Because I'd, I'd heard about Stanislavski and the, the method and things like that. And he kept, he was answering questions, answering questions, and finally said, just, just take some classes on your own. And he was doing a two-year conservatory thing. And, but there was a six-week summer intensive, and it was really, I went into it and I said, everything else, short of death in the family, this is what I'm doing for the six weeks. And if I, to the point where maybe I'll become an actor, like I want to be open to loving it so much that I drop everything else. That didn't happen, but I did 
it was a transformative experience. And what I teach, what I write about, what I try to, when I lead, well, for one thing, I, what I, I'm acting, I'm, I'm doing the yeah. leadership is a, it's a different art. It's a, it's a different performance based thing. It's, and, um, I learned, um, Meisner technique mm-hmm. of the different techniques that are out there. And I teach, if someone knew Meisner technique and took one of my classes, they'd be like, you just ripped off Meisner. All you did was switch out the exercises. Mm-hmm. You took business things and leadership things and put them in, but it's the same order. But then later I realized to play an instrument, you start with scales and work up from there. And to learn any of these things, you work up from there. And I was wondering, it, it just modeling seemed that, but I, I didn't see it. And I think what you're sharing, I hope that people who listen to this podcast are picking up what it takes like in sustainability, I'm, you know, I have a PhD in physics. I'm not going to say no more data. Of course, more science is, is, is essential. But with what we know now, we have everything we need. What we're missing is leadership. And, you know, we could use a bit of Mandela. We can use a bit of Dr. King. We can use some Churchill. We can use some FDR. And, uh, but how to get there is what I was talking to you about. And, so I wanted to give some context as to why I'm so interested in, in... What was interesting to me is that you seem to have learned at some point in your life that leadership could not be really taught in school. It wasn't taught at Harvard, but people who never went to college and became actors suddenly had this. And then to me, that would go. I would go, well... Leadership can't be learned then. It is something that you're born with or or you're not. It's a part of charisma. It's a part of truly believing in your cause and and a part of being well-spoken enough um, and quick-minded enough not to make that speech boring in order to inspire people, right? Like you really have to be ferociously involved in what it is that you want to lead in that you you have to believe it with your whole body and soul and then you have to be a good speaker and but you are saying that you have a method to teach that yes and uh it it called the spodic method or well there's a method to teach leadership in general so i'm teaching the semester at nyu and if all goes well the students will i'm not going to make them martin luther king over a semester but generally, I get pretty good reviews because it's experiential and not just um, when I was when I learned leadership, it was more like they opened the door, but I still had to walk through because it wasn't experiential. I try to make it more experiential, so I, I walk them through. Um, if you like, I could do the Spodic method with you, and uh, if you'd like to be led through a leadership exercise in sustainability, sure, that would be really interesting. Uh, yeah, it's like you just said you can't. Turn down a challenge. No, no. If it's a challenge, I'm I'm signing on. Uh, is the envi- is the environment something that matters to you? Is it something you're aware of that enough that and you care about it enough to act on it? Um, of course, it's something I'm aware of, and it's also something that I feel, I suppose, to a certain extent, guilty about enough to try to do my share as much as I can. Um, but you know, it's. It's interesting because I was, you know, I was raised in a communist country where we were extremely sustainable. Everything was reused. There was barely anything new. Um, you never, you know, the the surplus that we have now in this country that is available to you was, you know, it, unbelievable to me. Like I couldn't even have imagined this sort of a life. You know, I, I never had a new piece of clothing until I moved to Sweden uh, and which and where I still wore old people's like old clothing pieces because we didn't have the money to buy any new ones. And so sustainability was just being poor, you know, it's like you don't have the money to run your electricity all the time. You don't have the money for an air conditioner or a, or a, or a laundry machine. Um, you don't have the money for clothes or plastic toys and food never goes to waste. I mean, my grandmother, to her dying day, she would come to the United States. Uh, we would make dinner and um, the following day I would open my fridge and find the entire fridge filled with 
small little like plates that go under a coffee cup where there would be like two peas wrapped with saran wrap. No waste. No waste. And then she would take all the saran wrap, rinse it and pack it in her suitcase to reuse in the Czech Republic. So... In that story, I, I can't help but digress because you're recalling the stories from your book of you in Sweden with cheese, I think, at a convenience store. Mm-hmm. And the listeners have to read it to find out. And then also when you did first get money and you bought clothes and the toilet scene, which was... Yeah, the toilet incident. Yes, money can't buy you... Um, Popularity, it turns out, not really. It can't buy you happiness and it can't buy you love. There are some drawbacks to money. So everyone read the book. And then when you think of the environment, is that the first thing you think of is, is living sustainably in Czechoslovakia? Or, I mean, when you're in the environment. No, no, not necessarily. I mean, now when I think of the environment, I think of, you know. I oh, wait, wait, before you, if, before you answer, hmm. almost everyone starts jumping in and talking about what they read about in the paper and um, there's problems with the environment. But when you think of yourself in nature, like when you're in, um, in a scene, some experience in your life where you've been surrounded by nature, are, are there any that stand out of something that, of, of, I mean, some people it's in the forest or some people it's on the beach or some people it's with a pet or do you have any quintessential moments well, see, again, I, I'm going to have to come back to my upbringing, mm-hmm. uh, where I learned how to wash dishes by hand in one little basin of water, wash clothing in a big pot boiling on the stove that you fueled yourself with, you know, coal or wood. So you could plunk me down in uh middle of last century, and I would be fine, because I know how to do all these tasks with no electricity i'm always like mm-hmm. if you if you were stranded on the you know deserted island my friends always go i would totally pick paulina to go with me because i can do it all and this is you know this is just growing up poor mm-hmm. um and so sort of and that is a muscle memory it's sort of like it's there's a, a, a sort of a natural natural focus on doing things that are accidentally sustainable it's just the way that i'm used to living so i have a country house uh with my boys and um we have well water and the wells don't function very well so you know we are used to not flushing toilets we're used to like you're talking primitive living here uh, but we are saving a ton of water (laughs) um we um i think you know when I think sustainability now and the really big problems with sustainability, the ones that I don't have very much control over, obviously, you know, privately you can do all of this stuff, you know, you recycle, you reuse, you, you do all of this stuff, but um, airplanes, you know, connecting the world, that's obviously, you know, chewing into a, a large part of the environmental problems and then clothing, cheap clothing, being manufactured overseas, um, ruining the environment in a really big way. It's something that the fashion business is responsible for, in part, entirely. Um, You know, they seem so overwhelmingly big. Like, it's like, what do I do to make a dent in that? Uh, Well, I shouldn't buy the cheap clothes that, uh, you know, that, that polluted a ton of water over on the other side of the world. At the same time, you know, clothing is expensive. So, um, you you know, do you have enough money to buy expensive clothes? Most people don't. There's like, um, there's always like a, a toss up for balance. And I think we, the easier things get for us, the easier we want them. There's a kind of entitlement, right? Living, if you are, if you're moderately well off so that you have a firm roof over your head and you have all the food that you need and the transportation that you need, there's a, you know, you have information at your fingertips with your phone um, and, and society conspires to sell you things to make it even easier 
not to have to bother, not to have to worry, not to have to make your life any more difficult, to save time. Everything is the time saver. I think a lot of the things that are time savers are also not very good for sustainability. Now, you're telling about how your friends, if, if you were stuck on a desert island, they'd want you around. Last May, I challenged myself to see if I could go for a month with my apartment disconnected from the electric grid. I think I might have read that, actually. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, I've, I'm almost as famous as you now because ah. of this. Ah. And I, my goal was a month. I didn't know how I'd make it more than a couple days. Today's February 3rd, so I'm, we're nine and a half months in. Or eight and a half months. And I had no idea how, but I could have had you around. If I'd known to get to talk to you earlier, you could have helped me with like how to, how to get by with when the power, like the, the, um, different things would break and I'd have to figure out how to make things work and stuff like that. But uh, I want to, I want to go back to when you were talking about your living, however accidentally sustainably, mm. it seemed like there was a set of emotions with that that contrasted with um, the entitlement that you described currently. What emotions do you associate with living sustainably, however accidental it was? Living sustainably is living with more, um, it's more conscientious. It's, it's more focused on the moment rather than sort of blithely skipping through time ahead to the next big thing because you have to take the time. Everything takes time. Living sustainably takes time out of your day. If you can't stick your clothing into a washing machine and have it done in 45 minutes, you know, laundry day used to take the entire day and an intense physical labor. So it's not comfortable and it's not... Um, it's not, you know, if, if time is money, well, you just blew a wad right there just by doing your laundry. Um, but it also allows you to really, like, have these sensory experiences of the world, of your world, how, how everything actually works underneath it all. You know, what happens to... When you have a soiled sheet and you need to get it white and you don't have a washing machine and, you know, how do you get things clean? You have to lay them out in the sun to bleach. You know, you, um, like there's all these things that you learn that are sort of tactile and you, so you, you feel and you smell and you see and you hear and you're more involved in the moment. And it's something that I think we're getting less and less good at because of, you know, our internet capabilities and our social media and, you know, all it, this is a new world. So like living sustainably now, I think is, is difficult. I think it's very difficult. I'm trying to read the emotions because it looks like wistful or satisfying. What? It is, it is in part wistful. You know, look, when I went to the jungle to do the celebrity show, we lived very sustainably. We lived in like little lean-tos. We made our own fire, caught our own food. Um, we were in a, a sort of a raw patch of jungle where there was really nothing but a bunch of howler monkeys and poisonous snakes. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was roughing it. I was like seriously roughing it. And But I didn't have a problem with that at all. I felt maybe felt less anxious than I ever have in my life because my purpose of the day was clear, make a fire, find food, you know, fix your roof because it rained on you last night. You know, it was, it's a different kind of life when you're living to just live. And, you know, that's not, you know, like here I am in a lovely New York apartment with my phone, with my computer Zoom calls, um, that is, and I'm filled with anxiety from morning to night. <laughs> so yeah, there is something wistful about it. It is a physically harder and emotionally easier life. Physically harder, emotionally easier. 
All right, so here comes the challenge. But it's not actually, I'm not going to challenge you. I'm going to invite you at your option because it's happening. But uh, um, I invite you to think of something to do to act on those, the emotions you feel associated with the sustainability living. And that is to let go of fixing the world. That's not the point. But to do something that is emotionally easy with three constraints, uh, something that you're not already doing, something that you do yourself, not engaging. I mean, you can engage others, but you have to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And with some physical component. Uh, so not just reading a book or watching a, a documentary. And, and a lot of people hear something I didn't say. It's not to fix the world. It's not to fix anything else at all, but it's to manifest those emotions in some way. And if you're up for it, then to share how it went after you do it. And are we talking about picking up some garbage in Washington Square? So she's alluding to before we started recording, I said how I pick up litter in Washington Square Park every day. You could do that with me. Well, I hope you do that with me anyway. But um, that could be it if you feel like it, if you feel like that would draw out those emotions. Um, but this would be something that you come up with on your own. But see, yes, but um, I also do organic gardening in my upstate house, and I've been doing it for 25 years, and that I'm doing all by myself, mm-hmm. digging away and planting vegetables and weeding them and watering them and harvesting them and then making jam or, you know, countless loaves of zucchini bread. So I'm, I'm familiar with doing this, you know, by myself, producing something with just my own effort with nothing else. Um, so you want to challenge me to something extra? I don't, I don't. Okay. Well, usually it works out before. This is one of the big shifts that happens during this is that before people do it, they think, Oh, I have to do something extra. I think partly because generally national geographic and New York times are like, here's 10 little things you can do for the environment. Once people come up with it, they, one of two things usually happen, or a bunch of some things happen. Like the person will say, "Oh, you know, I've been meaning to do this one thing for a while. Oh, this is my chance to do that thing." Or they find something where the emotions you were talking about were missing in some area of, of their life, and they and they're like, "Oh, this restores that. This is it makes something more joyful." Yeah, I see. I I feel like mm, I feel like I have that in my life because of you know the organic gardening. Um, because of the very poor well water situation in my house where, you know, you don't get to flush the toilets very often. And uh, sometimes you just have to go and bathe in the creek because that's all the water available to you. Um, you know, cooking on open fires. Like, um, I do that. I do. That's a part of my life. And But I don't think of it as sustainability. I think mm-hmm. of it as just... Um, I guess, getting back to the life that I knew as a child. Yeah, it's not about sustainability. If it ends up being sustainable, great. But it's really about manifesting those emotions of wistfulness or or satisfaction or... um... I also knit. So that's another really good thing to do to where you feel like you're producing something at the same time your mind is free to roam and write you can be in hopes you know stuff I actually I think I do my best writing while I knit so I do a lot of knitting um but you know producing things with my hands for people I love for myself that's always a very satisfactory sort of thing now I have to digress and brag because my mom taught me to knit. And Good job. To the point where I could make, I think I made a sweater too. Like, And I just had coffee with her Monday, uh, earlier this week. And I was wearing a sweater and someone came in, uh, a machine-made sweater that I bought. Uh, and someone came in who was wearing a very similar sweater. And I looked at it and I looked at mine. I looked at it and looked at mine. And she was like, oh, is it the same? And I go, no, the sleeves are different. I think this is like, it's all the pearls on the outside. And... And she's like, yeah, yeah, the knits are on the inside. And I was like, I was so proud that I could tell <laughs> and that I connected with my mom from if something. The pearl stitch was on the outside and it was on the inside, unless you just reversed the sweater while you were wearing it. It was just the sleeves. Oh, okay. The rest was regular. It was a cable knit. So it was intentional. 
Got it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so if you're doing, if you've maxed out on things like this, then you've maxed out and maybe you're living just perfect for you. Most people, they find that when pressed, they find something that, like to bring what guarding brings, but generally not like a whole other lifetime thing. Right. Yeah, I think I think I might be maxed out, honestly. And I just feel like it's it's been a part of my life for so long. And God, people that come and visit from New York, like my friends from New York, you know, I go, you want to come to the country house? And they're like, yeah. And then they get there and you should see their face fall when they realize what the living arrangements are like. It's like, uh, yeah, no, dude, it's not a mansion, and no, there's no air conditioning, and no, sometimes there's no hot water, and hmm, how do you feel about washing your hair in a creek? Um, and so, like, I think if I lived like they do, this would be as shocking to me as it is to them, but I'm used to it. So you're already sharing. Yeah, it sounds like you are living. You you exude what I think many people can't imagine. Of, I mean, people come over sometimes, and I start chopping some kale, and it's like the leaves are a little bit yellow, and they're like, "Is that still good?" I'm like, "What?" Of course, I have to be open that a few years ago, if I went to the farmers market, I wouldn't know kale from spinach, and. So I've learned. So you've learned. Yeah. I mean, that was a lot of my sister pushing me, not pushing, but like she was like, join a CSA. And and she works with the farmer's markets in the city. And um, yeah, I find that people don't, you grew up in a situation that I think a lot of people haven't grown up in. And Most definitely. And the interesting thing to me of this is, is like just, like I never even really thought about how sustainable communist living was <laughs> um, by necessity and these incredibly valuable lessons that it taught me that I knew because I do not really know anybody else that knows how to do all of these things that I know how to do. Um, and you know what? Gardening is really fucking hard when you're doing it by yourself. It's hard. It's hard work. Um, and then, you know, harvesting and cooking all your own stuff, it's, you know, it's time consuming and, it, and it's a lot of work. It's also, of course, incredibly rewarding, but, um, yeah, that was my, sometimes life gives you these gifts that don't become apparent as gifts until later on. And that's the great thing about getting older is like, wow, that was a gift. That was a gift that I, that I, you know, I'm like the lady in the little house on the prairie. Laura Ingalls Wilder. Yeah. Now, can you clarify something? It's hard work and rewarding because that's the opposite of in, an, in a world where we're more and more entitled to be told no sounds like torture. To have to work for something that you could press a button for or swipe on the screen for. Yet you choose to do this. Yes, I choose to do it. Um, I choose to do it, I think, because it's uh, because I loved my childhood and because I have these sentimental attachments to my early childhood in the Czech Republic. And it brings me in touch with my, you know, my, with my with my with my with a child. It, it gives me that sense of peace that I had when I felt loved and when I felt safe. And so I. Giving that to my children is kind of my way of passing that on. If someone didn't grow up with that experience, would they not enjoy gardening? Um, whenever I've tried to rope in friends that had no previous experience, they they uh, clocked out pretty early. Yeah. Interesting. Because before we hit record and I said, you know, we might we may talk about sustainability overtly. And you said, oh, I don't know that much about it. But to me, the experiences you're talking about are more important. Like, I, I think when people say they don't know, what they mean is they don't know um, how many parts per million of carbon dioxide or whatever. Correct. That's – I was just listening to a leadership podcast with uh, Stanley McChrystal and um, this Harvard professor of leadership. And they were talking about 
a lot of leadership is not knowing what the right thing to do. That That is important. It's doing it. Generally, people know what they want to do and what they feel is the right choice. Doing it is a whole other story. And it's generally easier to do the other thing. Or, I mean, oftentimes it's, the challenge is when it's hard, easier to do the other thing. And that, I think, is something that's a bigger part of sustainability than anyone realizes, is people know, you know, this activity pollutes, but it's fun. But I want to. And, and, and the person suffering is like really far away. I can imagine that they're not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm afraid that's human nature. And I don't mean to sound like a cynic because I think uh, there's a lot of lovely humans out there. But I think as a collective, we prefer it easy to hard. I've just never, I've always been taught that the most rewarding, uh, the most rewarded you will feel after is after accomplishing something difficult. So I've never been one to take take it easy. I don't believe in easy. I think easy and shortcuts you'll end up paying for down the line. So I always do it the hard way. And a lot of my friends sort of look down at me for that. It's like, do you always have to do it the hard way? You're such an Eastern European. Yeah, I guess so. I prefer it the hard way because I get more pleasure from accomplishing a task the hard way. And it's generally better. And I learn more. So all the listeners who go out and live sustainably in ways that others are like, why don't you just, why cook? You can get takeout. And now beyond saying I'm doing it like Josh, they can say, I'm doing it like Paulina Portskova. <laughs> Yes, I'm planting my own garden, making zucchini bread, and knitting my sonnet sweater from the heap walls from my neighbor that I myself, um, you know, I can't I can't remember what it's called when you, um, you know, when you clean the wool with these wool brushes and then you spin it. I've, I've, I I know how to do all of that. It's like a Gandhi here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know what? Takeout in New York is kind of a fabulous thing. Hate to say it on the sustainability program, but God, I love to sometimes just get a prefab meal delivered to me. Well, but not every single meal, which I think a lot of people do. No, it's a it's kind of a reward for having done what I what needed to be done. Yeah, it's it's a a thesis that I've had leading up to this conversation on my side was. I, th- I think I-, I talked about how we lack leaders in sustainability. I think we also lack role models, even if they're not trying to be leaders. And when the title is model, it suggests that that person is probably probably good at being a role model as well. Models probably make good role models or effective role models. Whether they're good or not is another story. It depends on what what they do. Yeah, except most people think of models as being good role models for like what fashions to wear and what creams to put on your face and what color lipstick you should wear. They, people are not usually super fond of models who um, branch out and try to, you know, shed light on different corners of, of their experience. I suspect that a lot of people will find it easier to do, to do their equivalent of gardening. If I don't think there's a lot of people who don't want to be first. And there's a lot of people who aren't really sure what direction to go in. But if they see someone that they'd like to follow in other areas, I think they'd be more comfortable following in that area. Because right now, who are you going to – if you want to act more sustainably for whatever reason, I can tell you in my experience. I mean, people say, what's the point? Why bother? It, it's sort of like if someone wants to get fit and they start going to the gym and they start eating healthier – and the friends haven't made the choice to become fit. The old crab in a buckets, you know, that, that line. Mm-hmm. And it really helps to have some, or if someone's trying to quit an addiction and everyone around them is still addicted, mm-hmm. it helps so much to have someone who, especially if that person has exited that, gotten clean from that addiction themselves. I think that that's one of the big reasons for this podcast is to bring that out, to bring, even if people do it in other areas, they they show that vulnerability that they inevitably there's you try you fail you relapse 
but you stick with it, knowing someone who's been through it or that people have been through it, even if you don't know them directly, I think that's, I don't see that. That's one of, of the many things I'm trying to bring. That's one of them. Well, it's good. And you just like spotlight people who do it. And so they can set example by their own living practices and maybe give somebody a good idea or go, oh, well, yeah, like you said, if they can do it, maybe I can do like half of it, you know, maybe I can't do it all, but maybe I can do, you know, this bit or this bit. Ultimately, I don't know if it's because I'm Eastern European and so I'm a little pessimistic in in the ways of the world. But I I feel like um, as the world has drawn closer together through media and through all of this now that we're doing, it also pushes us all further apart. Everything sort of becomes, it's not personal anymore. Like nothing seems to be personal anymore. And so no, you know, you're not worried about your neighbor anymore. You're not worried about, you know, the person down the street. We, we live in, in different formations and situations and we're surrounded by news at all times. And I, I feel like it's, you know, what you're trying to do to like remind people to kind of rein it in and bring it back down a little bit, like I hope you can. I just wonder if it's a Pandora's box is open and it's it's out there and it'll be what it'll be. The word that I attach to what you're talking about is isolation. I feel like we're more, I mean, we may have people in close proximity and you and I are, we can see each other's faces, but it's not the same. And we're becoming more isolated. And I think we don't want to be, we don't, we don't, if we don't know any better or we don't identify it, we just we just get these lots of thrills all the time of you know the rushes of of thrill of, of euphoric hits. Yeah. It doesn't make up for it. And I think it's difficult for people to be the first, but I think once the community aspect kicks in, you talked about maybe oh, people I think that's the problem is that we are lacking community. That's the that's what I'm trying to get get back is is, and I think bring in people who are centers of community or influential people is something that's missing. And um, I'm not there yet to be, you know, I'm not Oprah yet. I don't have her. Um, the I'm I'm still working on when I walk into a room. Increasingly now, compared to before, I can get a crowd around me. But I know people who could do that when they were 10 years old and, mm-hmm. and then kept developing it from there. So I'm not, it's not a particular strength of mine. I mean, academic achievement, that's skill and lots of other things. I'm definitely working on that, but I want to bring in others who, and I want to engage others who want to, yeah, you said earlier, maybe people will do little things or I forget exactly how you put it. To me, what I want them to get is the joy or whatever intrinsic uh, emotion of reward because if if they do things little or big but it's not meaningful it's not for their own reasons yeah they may do it comply and be done yeah, yeah, but if they yeah. do it and they like it even if it's small yeah. the next thing will be bigger well, you have to feel a, a sense of triumph or accomplishment you know in order to to keep doing it yeah I'm working on it and I'm working on having that come out. That's why I start with asking people what the environment means to them is, is so it's coming from inside them, not me. Well, before we wrap up, cause I see we're getting towards the end of the time. Uh, so I was on the menopause podcast, which is or video cast, I guess. And uh, Larry and Mike are great and we were having a great time. And actually, Oh, we were talking about pickup litter. I think it was with them picking up litter. The, now you've been on there, I believe, four times or fifth time. Yeah, four. like three or four times. Yeah, yeah. And all right, so they are. I am a perennial menopause favorite. <laughs> yeah. And so menopause is for men in roughly the menopause, which is a play on menopause stage. And um, now there, you were talking a lot about dating, mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but and 
you were also very open about that too. Can I ask, like, how's it going? Because that you must have recorded that six months ago. Oh, I think it was almost longer than that, actually, at this point. Um, well, you know, bad dates make for really great stories. <laughs> so I'm almost like I almost have a book's worth of that. So that's going to be fun to write. Um, a lot of experiences. Um, but yeah, yeah, but you know, once in a while, you meet somebody who you think maybe has potential and then things get exciting for a little bit. Yeah. You married it. If I remember right, it was 19 or got together 19 and 19 and we got married when I was 23, I think. And yeah, I was with one man for 33 years and then fell in love once more. He dumped me after two and a half. And then I've been living the single life and uh, perusing the buffet of available men. I could have sworn you were going to say, uh, bad dates make for good stories. And I got some great stories. But I guess that's what you said when you had the yeah. the book. Yeah. Such a nice euphemism. I have enough for a book. And what keeps you coming back to menopause? Because it's mostly men. No, actually, I mean, I know that they say it's like something like a third of their um, audience is women. Honestly, just because I like Larry and Mike <laughs> and they ask and I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's let's shoot some shit, guys. Let's just, you know, yeah, fine, whatever. It, it's just being friendly and, and, and having a good time. It's like I, I don't have um, and and I've learned things from them about men are my age that I thought were like really, um, they were kind of cool to know, you know, they, they get a little bit vulnerable and they give away some some tips and secrets about how guys feel their age. And I can incorporate that into my dating life and be like, oh, I see why you were wearing that little beard, that little scruffy beard. I get it. I know now, thanks to Larry and Mike, it's you're hiding your double chin. Cool. And then now let's contrast that. Also, you said that um, your your book is about women also. So what's something about women that I, I might not know or that you're trying to work on? Wait, I don't understand the question. Yeah, I, there was something you said earlier in the conversation when I was talking about something and you said, oh, now I can't remember exactly what it was, but I, I made a mental note to come back to it, of that something about the book was, I think partly there was a message for women in it. Well, I mean, I am a woman and I'm a woman who has to had to restart completely again in you know midlife and and I'm not the only one it turns out there's plenty of us. Your husband doesn't have to die for you to have to restart. A lot of women just your kids go to college and you lose that sense of purpose that you had, you know, for having you know being the best mom you can being a wife taking care of the house doing this doing this and all of a sudden it's all gone and you have to sort of reinvent yourself so i think my story is like a slightly more dramatic version of, of a lot of other women's stories um it wasn't expressly written for them but it's uh i think we all relate to each other because we we understand we all understand one another what this is all about um Am I answering a question or am I just like going off on a tangent here? You are answering the question and you may also be going off on a tangent, but I find it Perfect. interesting because <laughs> in the context of you learning about men, now I'm learning about women. Right. Oh, about learning about women. So, yes, I think hmm, I've had a few guys that have read my book at this point, which I'm, I was super surprised about. I didn't think that any man would ever read my book. I thought it was so aimed at women a specific age too and then I have these young women reading it that really relate to the parts about the looks and about the beauty that that's kind of you know what concerns them um and I've had yeah men come up to me and thank me for uh illuminating perhaps how their wife thinks or like why why she feels a certain way, something that, you know, that hasn't really gotten through to them and that by being vulnerable and sharing everything, they, they go, oh, wait, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe my wife is feeling like this and that's why she's acting like this. The, 
because the female experience is very different from the male experience, I guess, all through life, really. But we really do separate in middle age. You know, we really, um, and, and I think men lack the empathy for their partners, for women, for what we are going through as we are being socially diminished and erased. And, and they're not. And I don't think, I don't think they understand the toll it takes on the, on, on their wives and on the women in their lives. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely, I didn't think of it as I was reading it, but as you're talking now, I felt it, it did give an inside view. I felt like it gave me an inside view into this modeling world, but also into the female mind and the female experience and the female heart of, from someone who's, you're being vulnerable. That means you're sharing things that no one else, that many others don't share, but they feel. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? I appreciate you doing that. Yeah. Like vulnerability is like the best thing in the world. Well, I think we have to wrap up, but is there anything to, to say before before closing? Any any message to the listeners or a thing to leave on? Oh, Lord, don't ever ask me that. That's like asking somebody what they want, uh, you know, on their tombstone. I don't, I, now say something really brilliant to the people that are listening to you so they can remember that one. Nope, I have no fucking idea. Sorry, I'll just say, bye. Thank you for listening. Then I'll say for her, read the book and that'll give you some, that'll give something. There you go. Perfect. Well, uh, Paula, thank you. Very much. Yeah, John, you are <laughs> yeah. very welcome. It was nice to see you again, John. So, Paulina Portskova, thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. Bye. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.